0: There you go, Unstoppable Force, current teaching series. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. We're talking about the church. We're working our way through First Timothy. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build my church... And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so what we're learning as we walk our way through First Timothy is how we can be everything Christ died to make us as his people, as his church. And uh, we're on our second part here. We'll be working our way through chapter 1, verses 12 through 20 here this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. First Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 20, glorious gospel is what we're talking about. And uh, take a look at your sermon notes, big statement right at the very beginning as we talk about the gospel. I love the gospel. I love the topic of the gospel. Nothing can transform a human heart, heal a wounded soul, fill you with meaning, hope, and happiness, turn hatred into love, bring about forgiveness, reconciliation, and peace like the gospel. I'm more convinced about those statements and many more uh, today than I've ever been. It's absolutely, I I love the gospel. And um, I really, uh, I I know this statement and this idea of the gospel transforming people's lives firsthand. Uh, A week ago, this last Wednesday, did the memorial service for my dad. And then just a few weeks before that, did the memorial service for my father-in-law. And both of them were transformed by the message of the gospel. And some of you know this, many of you maybe know this, but we prayed for my dad, my wife and I prayed for my dad for 20 years, and Christ set him free from alcoholism, and it was through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We prayed for my father-in-law for 40 years. And on his deathbed, he, he made a confession of faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, and the gospel transformed his life. By the way, we're talking about next weekend evangelistic praying, and it's really, really important to continue to pray for those that don't know Christ. So we'll be talking about that next week, but this week we're talking about the gospel, the power of the gospel. So I know that firsthand, not only just in the lives of the people that are closest to me, I've seen Christ transform their life, but also in my own life. I've expe- experienced, I continue to experience the transformation of the gospel of our Savior Jesus Christ, and along with the fact that uh, Desert Breeze has been going for 28 years this Easter, and I have had a front row seat to watch literally thousands and thousands of people experience life change through the gospel, and it's, it's absolutely amazing. So I'm stoked about the gospel, and I'm not going to let you get out of here this morning until you're stoked too, Okay. I'm going to teach and preach and tell. in fact, we're going to go ahead and lock the doors right now. You guys are stuck in here. Some of you are already stoked about the gospel, but that's what I want to do here this morning. I want you to see more clearly the gospel, the gospel message, what it's all about. Take a look at the next statement on your notes. The gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian faith, but the A to Z. We often think of the gospel as, okay, I I got that down, I need to move on. No, 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 you never move on beyond the gospel. It's not just the way you become a Christian, but also the way we grow as a Christian. You never go beyond the gospel, you only go deeper into the gospel. All of our problems, every one of your problems, all my problems, all of our problems are a failure to fully grasp the gospel in every area of our life. In fact, I believe that the Spirit-filled life, really experiencing the the power of the Holy Spirit working in our life, the Spirit-filled life, is having the gospel become more real to our hearts. I mean, he um, he just electrifies the gospel, where the gospel becomes more real to us more than ever before. Christ becomes more real to us and all that he is and all that he's done for us. And so, uh, let me bring you up to speed if you haven't been with us. We kicked off this teaching series last weekend. We looked at verses 1 through 11. We titled that, We Can... Uh, teaching. Doctrine matters. If you haven't heard that teaching, I would encourage you to, to go check it out. But let me give you the thesis statement for it because they kind of build on each other. And so doctrine matters. And so we talked about how healthy doctrine produces a healthy faith. If you don't have a vibrant, growing, engaging, energizing, rich, robust faith relationship with Christ, you need to go back to your doctrine. Healthy doctrine produces a healthy faith. A healthy faith is a life uh, of love. It's it's a life of love that that as you grow in your understanding of who Christ is and what he's done for you, you begin to have this increased capacity to not only love God, but love others. And what does that come from? Well, a life of love comes from a life lavished by the love of God in the gospel, through the gospel, in all that Christ has done for us. And so that's the thesis statement So in verses 1 through 11, doctrine matters, Paul says we are to reject the false teachers who are teaching a false gospel, and now in verses 12 through 20 that we're looking at here this weekend, he gives us a personal testimony to the true gospel. He uses his own life as a as, a, as an example of how the gospel can transform our lives. So we're going to look at six features of the glorious gospel from this text. But before we do that, let's pray, and then we'll read our text and unpack these notes. Let's, would you bow your heads with me? So, Father, we are delighted to be here this morning. We were created by you for you to give glory to you. And you are most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in you. And yet we have all sinned and have fallen short of your glory, and all human problems are ultimately symptoms, and our separation from you is the cause. But you demonstrated your love for us in this while we were still sinners. You sent your Son to rescue and redeem us. We thank you that no sin or suffering is a match for the glorious gospel of our Savior Jesus Christ. May these truths not only be clear to our minds, but real to our hearts, transforming our lives, healing our souls, and filling us with meaning, hope, and happiness. We pray in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said... Amen. So, let me take a look at this. Uh, grab your Bibles there, and let's read through the text. I begin in verse 11. It won't be up on the screen, but you'll see it there if you got your Bible open in front of you. And so, he talks about sound doctrine in verse 10, which means healthy doctrine, and he kind of describes it there in verse 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And now... Paul goes into his transformation through the gospel. Listen to what he says, verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. In fact, a statement like that is found five different times in the three pastoral epistles or letters. And so evidently they had these little creeds or these little statements that the pastors preached and the people memorized. And they passed these around so that people could really more fully embrace the gospel and truths about Jesus. And in fact, he gives us the gospel in a nutshell right here. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost but I receive mercy from, for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Now, look at verse 17 as a doxology. The deeper the theology, the higher the doxology. This, it's worship. And so, what should happen to you if you're a Christian from time to time? As you, deep, as you think deeply about the gospel and the implications of all that Jesus is and who he is for you, oh my goodness, your worship of him should soar. And that's what you have here. He's just overwhelmed by the transformation that he's experienced as a result of the gospel. And he says, to the king of ages... Immortal, invisible, the only God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So it's a pretty powerful statement. Then he goes on here, and he says, uh, "This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare." So he's he's talking about if you have the gospel, you understand the gospel, you've made a commitment of your life to Christ. You got to realize you got to still fight for your delight in Christ. That's, he's talking about waging the good warfare. What does that mean? Well, holding faith and a good conscience. And if you don't do that, he says, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. You're going to shipwreck your faith if you don't fight the good warfare by holding faith and a good conscience. He says, by rejecting this, some have shipwrecked their faith, among whom are Hymenius and Alexander. Whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme that 's not a good way to have your name in the Bible right there okay That's, you don 't want to be in the Bible when they mention you in, in those terms this is god 's word to us this this weekend this morning, and so take a look at your sermon notes here we 've got a lot to cover here let 's talk about six features of the of the glorious gospel. And let me just kind of walk through them, and then we'll take them individually. So the Glorious Gospel is historical, Christocentrical, transformational, doxological, countercultural, and unbeatable. There's six of those, and we will draw it from our text. So here's the first one. The Glorious Gospel is historical. I gave you a little bit of room, not much, to kind of uh, put added notes there as God speaks to you. And so... It means that it is good news, not good advice. When we talk about the gospel, the glorious gospel being historical, what we mean by that is that it's good news, not good advice. Mark 16, 15, one of the uh, cross-references that I've got there on your notes, it's one of the great commissions by our Savior. He says, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. Verse 11 It mentions the word. It gives us the word gospel, which means good news. Verse 15, we have the gospel in a nutshell, as I stated. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. So here's my question for you. If I were to come to you and ask you, what is the gospel? Could you define the gospel to me? Did you know that most American Christians could not define the gospel, could not tell you the gospel? That's a tragedy. So what would you say? I asked my wife that this week. I said, hey, so tell me the gospel. And she nailed it, Okay, Of course. She was all over it. I go, yeah. So what would you say? Here's what you hear me say regularly, and I do it a bit redundantly and repetitively because I want you to memorize it and know this. This is what you should have memorized. In fact, you could even memorize this verse that we just stated here because that's a, the gospel in a nutshell, verse 15. But let me give you what I say regularly. The gospel is the good news that God has reconciled us to himself by sending his son to die in our place for our sins, and all who repent and believe in him have everlasting life. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And being able to articulate the gospel with accuracy is one thing. Having its truth captivate your soul is quite another. So you need to not only be able to articulate it, but you need to have it captivate your soul and understand the implications as you begin to live the gospel out. Now let's talk about the difference between advice and news. We're making that distinction here. So advice is counsel about something to do It hasn't happened yet, but you can do it. That would be good advice. Good news is a report about something that has already happened. It's historical. It's been done. It's been done for you, and all you can do is respond to it. So, good advice is what you must do. It's about D O. Good news is what has been done. D O N E. Let me give you an illustration here. A king goes into a battle against an invading army to defend his land. If the king defeats the invading army, he sends back to the capital city messengers. The Bible would use the term evangelist, good newsers. And so he sends back to the capital city messengers with good news of what has been done, D-O-N-E, done and the people respond with great joy and can now live their lives in this peace which has been achieved for them but if the king doesn't defeat the invading army and the invading army breaks through and the king sends back the king sends back military advisors with good advice for what the people must do to fight for their lives so one is a response of joy, the other is a response of fear. Every other religion sends military advisors, but Christianity sends messengers with good news. If you want to know the difference between Christianity and all the major cults and religions, that's it. They send Advisors with good advice, what you must do. Christianity sends good newsers. Good news about what has been done for you. That's 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 really understanding the gospel. One is a response of joy, the other is a response of fear. In the short run, they both look alike. You, you, you want to read your Bible, you want to pray, you want to go to church, you want to live by the Ten Commandments for totally two different reasons, joy or fear. In the long run, the fear-motivated life leads to guilt, self-righteousness, burnout, and despair. Now, with each of these, we're going to look at a church implication because we're looking at how we can be a healthy church, what a healthy church looks like. And so, with each of these, we'll we'll say, okay, well, how does that apply to us here at Desert Breeze? So, the church life implication is this. Listen if you can track with this. Declarative preaching is irreplaceably central to a gospel-centered church. We are a gospel-centered church. Not all churches are gospel-centered. And so, being a gospel-centered church, declarative preaching is irreplaceably central. What I mean by declarative, I mean proclaim or announce or affirm the gospel. How many have ever heard this quote before? Preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. Anybody hear that? You guys heard that before? Yeah. That's a bad quote. It's bad theology. And and the reason for that is that statement is confusing what the gospel does, transform lives, with what the gospel is, good news. Oftentimes when I ask people to define or tell me what the gospel is, they'll tell me about a transformed life or kind of a byproduct of the gospel, and that's not the gospel. Don't confuse the results of the gospel with the gospel. and. Transformed lives is not the gospel, it is the result of the gospel. Listen to me, the gospel is an announcement of something that has happened in history that changes your status forever. So, yeah, yeah, we're into social justice. We do a lot of outreaching into the community. We're going to help people in a lot of different ways, physically, emotionally. But ultimately, no strings attached, we want to be able to present the gospel. And to present the gospel, you've got to tell them what the gospel is. It's good news. It's, it's good news. The gospel is an announcement of something that has happened in history that changes your status forever. Becoming a Christian is an instant Status change, bam, just like that. You put your faith in Christ and immediately your status is changed. John 3.14 states, we have passed from death to life. It's not that we are passing or will pass, but we have passed from death to life. You are either forgiven and accepted by God or you're not. Think about this. You are either reconciled to God or not. You either have eternal life in Christ or not. And if you do, because it's been done for you, you celebrate that. You live in the reality of that. You enjoy that. I I like asking people if, you know, when they're, people that I think there might be Christians or or maybe not. I'll just say, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? That's a great question to ask someone. You can kind of tell if they understand the difference between do or done, whether it's good advice or good news by their response. So if I were to ask you, are you a Christian? If you responded to me with doubt by saying something like this, so are you a Christian? You said, I'm trying. I really am. I'm not doing a very good job. You don't understand it, because it's not about do, it's about done. You might not respond with doubt, but maybe you respond with a little air of defensiveness. And I say, are you a Christian? You go, of course I am. You see me here at Desert Breeze all the time, Pastor Ray. I lead a small group in my home. I put money in the box. You don't understand it either, because it's not about do. That's about done. Here would be a more appropriate response if you really understand it. It wouldn't be doubt or defensiveness. It would be delight. Are you a Christian? Yeah. Can you believe it? Me? Me? I'm a Christian. I can't even believe it myself. Jesus paid it all. He didn't just die for my past forgiveness and future resurrection, but also so that I can experience his presence, and power and peace to face anything in the here and now. It's done, it's done, it's mine through Jesus Christ. I'm a mess, but he's come to rescue me and I love him for that. Now believe me, all of our problems are due to the fact that we don't live in the reality of that. The default mode of our heart is always to go back to do. It's more of a kind of a works righteousness as opposed to, no, listen, it's done. That's the reason why it's about proclaiming. Let me go back to that statement that I said earlier you know what's the church implication declared a preaching is irreplaceably central to gospel centered church that's what I do week in and week out it's done we have access into the throne room of God do you understand what he's done for us and that's what ultimately transforms our life it's not get your act together and then come to Jesus no come to Jesus and he will transform your life that's the gospel don't you understand what he has done for you so okay Woo, that's good I, I, need, I need a reminder of that, like every, every day that it's done, it's done It's done. Why, why are you trying to work for it? You've already got it. Enjoy it. So it 's historical, it's also Christocentrical. It's Christocentrical. So the other little statement next to this here on your notes, the Bible gospel is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Luke 24:27 and 44 and John 539. Jesus made that clear. He said, "Hey, the whole book's about me." Now, let me show you in our text how that is true. Look at verse 12. Listen to what Paul says. I thank him, that sounds like it's directed towards Jesus, who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 14, and the grace of our Lord overflowed from me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Verse 15, the saying is trustworthy And deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus, there it is again, there he is again, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Look at verse 16. But I received mercy that Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. So here's the church implication. The basic subject of every sermon ought to be who? Jesus. You got it. Yeah, the basic... Subject of every sermon ought to be Jesus, regardless of what the passage is. It doesn't matter whether it's Old or New Testament. It needs to always point to him. And you might be thinking, wait, 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 but isn't there a lot of law in the Bible? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We talked about it last week, but, but the law is the diagnosis of our problem, but the gospel, Christ Jesus, is the cure. So, so for instance, let's just say that you're reading through Ephesians 4.29. And Ephesians 4.29 says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for the building up of others according to their need. E, that's convicting. I don't always talk like I should. Oh, Lord Jesus, help me. Bingo, you got it. Yeah, it should take your heart to Jesus. Now, you're not doing it out of fear that he's going to get you. You're doing it out of joy because of what he's already accomplished. And you want to fully represent him. So, So once again, so what is it? The law is the diagnosis of our problem, but the gospel, Christ Jesus, is the cure. So here's here's pop quiz, pop quiz time. I asked you this question last week just to make sure if you're learning. And so is the Bible, you can ask the person next to you, is the Bible basically about me and what I must do, or is it basically about Jesus and what he has done? Turn to the person next to you, ask them the answer to that question. So think about that when you study the Bible If you're going to the book And thinking it's what I got to do I got to work harder Got to get his approval Got to get his acceptance Wait a minute you've already got that You've got that through Christ Jesus So it's going to make a difference in how you read, read the Bible By the way listen to the, you know, the teachers that are not only here at Desert Breeze, but if you listen to other teachers and read other books, sometimes they're going to be giving you good advice and not good news. It'll be more about what you must do as opposed to what has been done for you. And that's important distinction to make. So, So the is the Bible basically about me and what I must do to be right with God or is it basically about Jesus and what he has done to make us right with God? It's done. It's done. The Christian life is not a call to behave, but to behold. It's not a call to, hey, get your act together and then come to Jesus. The Bible doesn't say that. It's about behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's what John the Baptist said in John 1, 20, which will inevitably transform how you behave. The more you behold, the more it transforms how you behave. By the way, I've talked about this. We all struggle with this gap. It's called the gospel gap between what we believe and how we behave. Oftentimes, my, my, beha- my beliefs and my behavior don't aren't together. There's this gap. And so my my behavior would would have too much anxiety, anger, and depression, considering the people, things, and circumstances of my life that th- it wouldn't be consistent with how I believe. It's just like uh, I, I believe that God's with me, but I'm not acting in a way that would be consistent with that. And so the way I narrow the gap, begin to live more in the reality of how I believe So my behavior matches my beliefs as I behold. I'm not living in the reality of what I have in Christ Jesus, who He is and what He's done for me. And I'm not taking those truths and applying to the specific areas of my life where I'm most struggling. And so as you study God's Word in the new year, don't look for life lessons as much as you should look to get a glimpse of the only one who can satisfy the deepest longing of your soul, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then take moments to just behold and and think out and just savor it and go, oh my goodness, God, you have done that for me. You love me that much. Oh my goodness. So let uh, let me walk this out a little bit more with a Timothy Keller quote. He talks about how the Old Testament, sometimes we read through the Old Testament, we go, oh my goodness, how do these different characters apply to my life and all these rules and laws? And I kind of talked a little bit about how the rules apply to our life, but how about these characters? And he, he has this list. You can do a Google search, and uh, the title of it is Jesus is the True and Better. And I'm not going to read all of them, but he goes through a lot of the Old Testament characters. And listen to what he says. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who though innocently slain, has blood now that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Let me jump through this a little bit more. Jesus is the true and better Joseph. You guys remember Joseph in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis? Yeah. So Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Here's a good one. Jesus is the true and better Job. You guys familiar with the book of Job in the Old Testament? It's a book about suffering and the sovereignty of God. So Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. I think you get the point. They all point to Jesus. And uh, so the Bible the is really not about you. It's about him. And here's, what, here's further implication to us as a church. A, a Christian church that does not have as its primary focus... The deepening of passions for Christ Jesus is an unhealthy or maybe even a false church no matter how zealously it seeks conversions or how forcefully it advocates righteous behavior. So being converted to Jesus is not just about learning to obey some rules, but it is about learning to so adore Christ Jesus that we would gladly renounce everything we have to follow him. So I can tell when someone's getting the gospel because they're, wet, they're ready to get rid of anything that would interfere with their relationship with God. They're like, I don't need that. I got him. I want more of him. They, they gladly renounce anything in their life so that they can follow him. So it's it's historical, it's Christocentrical. it's number three, transformational. So how does the gospel transform our lives? And, and so this is how it transforms our lives. It's As we come to an understanding that you and I are more sinful than we ever dared to think, but lo- more loved than we ever dared to dream, Romans 5, 8, it says this, that God demonstrates his love for us, and this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So it's understanding the combination of those two ideas. It's very transformational. Look at verses 13 and 14 from our text. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. So he's talking about B.C. So I'm more sinful than I ever dared to think. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. But I'm more loved than I ever dared to dream. So there's two things that we need to understand when we talk about the gospel. To understand the gospel, you must understand two things. Okay, listen to me. There's going to be a pop quiz right after this, okay? So get ready. Here it is. Here's the first thing. To understand the gospel, you must understand two things. Number one, how great is your debt? How great your debt is that you owe God because of your sin, your dire condition apart from Christ. So how great is your debt? That's the first thing. The second thing is the magnitude of God's provision. You need to know both of those. Okay, turn to the person next to you and see if they can answer that. So what are the two things? What are those two things that I need to understand to really understand the gospel? Real quick, do that. So, debt and provision for the debt. You need to know how dire your condition is and then the magnitude of his provision. Your debt, so how great is your debt, the magnitude of God's provision. What would you do if while you were away from home one day, a friend who was at your home visiting paid an overdue bill for you? It all depends on what the bill is, huh? Is that what you're thinking? Like me, it's like, well, it just depends on what the bill is. And uh, that's a good question. What, what, would, what is the bill? Well, if it was a, a small unpaid postage on a letter, you would probably pat them on the back and say, gee, thanks. But let's just say that... Uh, Hypothetically, if IRS had finally caught up to you after 10 years of unpaid taxes and had come to take you to jail and your friend paid off your entire debt, you would not pat them on the back and say, "Gee, thanks." You would fall to your knees in gratitude and feel forever indebted to your friend. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. So here's let's let's bring this into the Christian life. Now, If somebody says, I believe Jesus died for me, I have given my life to Christ, I accepted him, I've walked forward and invited him into my life, someone says that to you, but you don't see any overwhelming gratitude and joy in that person's life, and you don't see any identity or behavioral transformation, well, what's the problem? What would be the problem? Well, it's clear that this person doesn't understand the size of the debt, and therefore, the size of the payment. Now, let's, let's walk this out a little bit more. Let's just say that you attend a church, and the pastor says regularly, we're all about the love of Jesus here. We don't talk about sin here, because that's too negative. Yeah, I know you guys have enough negativity in your life, so we only talk about the love of Jesus and so it's a, it's a church filled with the love of Jesus minus sinfulness. So, so you know that you are more loved than you ever dared to dream, but you don't realize that you are more sinful than you ever dared to think. You don't understand that part of it. And what will happen? Well, you're not going to change. That's called easy beliefism, and it's because you don't understand the size of the debt. And actually, that's called liberalism. And the liberalism goes like this. God accepts me, therefore, I don't have to obey. He just accepts everybody. And you're not going to have transformation. How about this? You go to a church, you you leave that church, and you go to another church, and all they want to talk about is sin, It's all about sin. And you will, I mean, you leave every week, you realize, oh, my goodness, I'm more sinful than I ever dared to think. But there's not much talk about the fact that I'm more loved than I ever dared to dream. So it's all sin minus the love of God. That's called Phariseeism. And you're not going to be transformed because you don't understand the magnitude of God's provision. That's called legalism. Legalism. And legalism goes like this, I obey, therefore God accepts me. I've got to get my act together before he will love on me. But when you have this beautiful combination of I'm more sinful than I ever dared to think, but I'm more loved than I ever dared to dream, that's gospel transformation. The gospel basically is God accepts me, a sinner in Christ, therefore I want to obey. Because you're beginning to realize he died the death I should have died, therefore I'm forgiven, and he lived the life I should have lived, therefore I have his righteousness. I'm perfect in God's eyes because of what he's done. So here's the church implication. We must preach the whole counsel of God's word of both sin and grace. By the way, be aware of that in our culture today. We have those two extremes. And you need to have a good balance of, of from time to time. When you, when you look at the full-length mirror of God's Word, you're going to see your sinfulness. But, boy, that should help you to just run to Jesus and understand He died for your sins, and, oh, He's transforming you. And you can trust in Him. You can rest in Him. And so there needs to be that balance. We must preach the whole counsel of God's Word of both sin and grace. Grace is celebrated most joyfully when sin is grieved most deeply. One of the reasons why we don't understand or we don't have the indescribable, indestructible joy that the Bible talks about is because we don't understand the debt, the debt that we owe Him to the degree you see your dire condition is to the degree the magnitude of His provision. The cross gives you life-transforming joy. So if you're studying the scriptures appropriately, yeah, there's going to be conviction, but that conviction is going to draw your heart to Jesus as he continues to transform your heart. That's how the gospel transforms us. So it's historical, Christocentrical, transformational, and it's doxological, and it should lead to worship. That's what doxological means. My heart is smitten. It's captivated by the beauty and the glory of Christ Jesus. Verse 17, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. So there should be times in your life when you are swept away You you are taken off into just celebrating the goodness of God. In fact, you need to understand this: that what you daydream about is what what in your spare time is really what you're serving, what you're ultimately worshiping, what's most important to you. And so you should be daydreaming. It's called worship. You should be daydreaming about Jesus. Be taken up in in just this uh, experience of of the riches, of the glory, of the gospel, of who Christ is and what he's done for you. It's doxological, doxology, worship. So the gospel becomes the most amazing message you have ever heard. You begin to realize that the smartest, richest, most athletic people on this earth have nothing on you. All the rock stars and movie stars and athletic stars, "Ah, that's cool, they don't have anything on me because of what I have in the gospel. Have you ever seen those lottery winners that win the big billion-dollar lotteries? Are they just a little bit excited or a whole lot excited? They're a whole lot excited, but you can look at them and go, they have nothing on me. How about the national champions this last Monday? Who won the national championship between Alabama and Clemson? Anybody? Nobody knows? You guys don't care? It was Clemson. Clemson. So, were they excited? You know, what's interesting about that is that the, uh, the coach seemed to be a Christian, I've heard, and even the quarterback. I saw a video. Uh, Drew Hannon sent me a video here uh, within the last year where he was giving his testimony. He says, football's not my identity. My identity's in Jesus. I'm going, yeah, dude. No wonder you were so cool and calm back there playing quarterback against Alabama. I'm just glad that Alabama got beat. But that's... Uh, <laughs> But, but, hey, they don't have, you know, and basically what he's saying is, yeah, yeah, oh, well, yeah, we won the national championship. No big deal. I've got Jesus. I've got Jesus. And so, if, really, the idea here, if, what about uh, Super Bowl winners? They don't have anything on us. By the way, my condolences to the Colts and Cowboy fans. <laughs> Feel really bad. Also, my condolences to the Eagle and the Patriot fans. Sorry. That game's going on right now between the Patriots. We got a guy right here with a Patriot jersey on. Where's the security? <laughs> could, could we get security in here? So, hey, they don't have anything on us Regardless. They have nothing on us. The purpose of the gospel is not merely to give us forgiveness, but to bring us to full flourishing through glorious worship. All of our problems in our life is the fact that we worship the wrong things. We tend to exchange the truth of God for a lie, and we worship and serve created things more than the Creator. When you look at the Ten Commandments, we violate... 2 through 10 in direct proportion to how we violate number 1, the first commandment. What is the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. That's Exodus 23. Notice he doesn't give us a third option there. He says, basically, he says, you shall have no other gods before me. In other words, you'll either serve the true and living God or you'll have a counterfeit God. Because our heart will have a God. We are going to give the deepest loyalties and affections of our hearts to some God. And he's saying, don't give it to anything other than the true and living God. But when we do give it to some other God, pseudo-savior, counterfeit God, that's when it creates major problems in our lives. Underneath every sin is idolatry in general. And underneath that is some form of works righteousness, a self-salvation project We're trying to find that sense of acceptance, security, and significance in a created thing over and above the creator. Everything from workaholism to eating disorders to racism is something that you love more than God. Your heart's imagination dotes on something more than God. For workaholism, it would be your success at work, or for um, eating disorders, it would be your thinness. For racism, it would be your race. The only way to change, the only way to change is to change what you worship. You, we worship our way into trouble. The only way you can get out of trouble is you have to worship your way out by worshiping the true and living God and realizing what you have in Him is better by far than what you're trying to find in a created thing, even if it's a good thing that you've ultimate you've you've turned it into an ultimate thing in your life. I, my wife was working for a cabinet shop a number of years ago, and uh, and the, one of the employees came to work and he was suicidal and homicidal and it was because he's, he was a jilted lover. He had had a, a, a relationship with a gal for many years and she had left him and he was devastated. And so I sat down with the guy, started talking to him and he had come from a church background. He had, some, he had an understanding of Christianity and apparently was a Christian is what he told me. And as I, he spent a couple hours just kind of unloading and talking and crying and weeping, and I tried to console him and encourage him. And then as I begin to start talking to him about what he had in Christ and talk to him, kind of uh, recalibrate his heart a bit here, and I begin to tell him that really the only eyes in the universe that matter find him more valuable than, than all the wealth in this world and that this God of the galaxies, he has forgiven you, reconciled you, adopted you, lavished you with his love, empowered you with his Holy Spirit, guaranteed you a place in heaven. Do you understand that? Kind of walked out the implications. And as I began to talk, it was almost as if he was kind of looking right past me. His eyes kind of rolled back in his hand. He was looking out the window. As I was talking to him, almost as if like he wasn't hearing anything I said. And when I finished he responded by saying, well, what good is all of that if she doesn't come back to me? And I thought, you don't get it. His ex-lover was on HDTV, but the gospel was on AM radio with static on the line. See, it's one thing to be sorrowful over the loss or the hits that we take in life, because when you, when you lose a good thing, you're going to be sorrowful. But if that good thing has become an ultimate thing in your life, you're not just going to be sorrowful, you're going to be in despair. And you're going to have inconsolable emotions. It's called idolatry. It's called, you shall have no other gods before me. And the only way that he could get his heart off of her, it would be to put it on Christ Jesus and that's how we work on our issues. So here's the church implication. Spiritual disciplines are meant. This is spiritual discipline, what we're doing right now. When you read your Bible, pray. All of those things that we do, spiritual disciplines are meant not just to make the truth about Christ clear, but to make it real through worship. Thomas Chalmers, an old dead theologian, put it this way. And you can Google search this. It's really a great sermon. It's a bit archaic, but it's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And let me just give you this quick quote, quote from him. He says, "The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one." So So the point is here it is from it is from your desire for a greater pleasure in Christ, such as in Christ, that you can say no to lesser pleasures, such as money, career, romance, porn, workaholism, shopaholism, drugs, whatever it might be. What are you struggling with? I'm telling you that you worshiped your way into trouble. The only way you're gonna get yourself out of that trouble is you gotta worship your way back out because you're trying to get out of a created thing what you need to be looking to the creator to get. You need to go back to him, and that's what the gospel does. It brings our heart back to Christ. And you begin to reason with yourself, why would I want pleasures that are fleeting when I can have pleasures that are infinite and eternal? Killing sin happens as we sever the root of sin's desire with the power of a superior desire for Christ. See, sin is what we do when we're not satisfied with God. All of our sins are a result of not being satisfied with him. And so holiness is being so satisfied in Christ that sin loses its appeal. So spiritual disciplines are less about being like Christ and more about being with Christ because the more you are with Jesus, satisfied in him, the more you will become like Christ. So you spend time with him. Get to know him. Worship him. Daydream about him. And it will transform your life. So it's historical, Christological, transformational, doxological. Let's knock out these last two. It's countercultural. It's countercultural. And what will happen is it creates a different kind of a church environment. And it's because we recognize that I was so sinful, Jesus had to die for me, that tends to humble me. So when people come in that struggle with sin, I can radically identify with them. So you got this radical identification. So there's no towering over them. But then there's also no cowering because you realize that he loved me so much he wanted to die for me. And so you're still able to speak the truth to people. So there's no towering, there's no cowering. There's that radical identification but you're radically different just like Jesus. Jesus was a friend of sinners. He didn't do sin with sinners. But he was a lover of sinners, so he was radically he radically identified, and yet he radically was different from them, and loved them. And so look at what it says here in our text. So it creates really within us a humble boldness, as we've talked about in the past. Verse twelve: I thank him who has given me strength, appointing me to to his service. So we become of service to people. We look for ways to help people to see more of the gospel verse 16 but I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost uh, as the foremost as the as the sinner the foremost sinner Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience so I'm more sinful than I ever dared to think yeah I'm humbled by that but I also have courage because because he's he is displaying his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life I'm a walking billboard advertisement of of God's grace and what he's done in my life. And that's how we are as it relates to other people. And by the way, we never never motivate people out of fear and pride. Fear would be God's going to get you. You better change or pride. You don't want to be like all those people over there that live like that. You want to be like us on the winning team. Well, that's not how you motivate people. It's actually love that motivates people. Love motivates. Fear and pride can restrain the will, but only love can transform the heart. We are motivated not by fear and pride, but by love. Our hearts have been ravished by his love for us. Here's the church implication. How do we relate to the world around us? Well, the church is not a museum for saints, but a hospital for sinners. The church should be a place where people can can be free to say that they are sinners and that we love and accept people right where they are, but we love them too much to let them stay that way. We point them to Jesus as we follow Christ. And here's the last one, unbeatable. Unbeatable. So the the gospel is historical, Christological, transformational, doxological, countercultural. And then unbeatable. I must fight every day for my delight in Christ. I must fight every day for my delight in Christ. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole text, but let me point out to you in verse 18. Notice what he says. Wage the good warfare. How do you do that? Verse 19. Holding faith and a good conscience. If I don't do that, I'm going to shipwreck my faith. So what is he talking about here? Well, the gospel is not only head sound but it's also heart-satisfying. You have to have both of those working in your life. It's head sound, holding on to faith, and it's heart-satisfying, a good conscience. That's verse 19. The gospel appeals to the mind but satisfies the heart. It is both rational and relational. You must think deeply about God to feel deeply about God. But just thinking deeply about Him, it needs to move you and stir you and captivate you. And to excite you and energize you and engage you, the gospel and all that Christ is and what He's done for you. 2011, Barna did a study and it shows that nearly half of all adults in America have prayed the prayer of salvation and subsequently believe they are going to heaven though many of them rarely, if ever, attend a church, read the Bible personally, or have lifestyles that differ in any significant way from those outside the church. That's a problem, isn't it? So the enemy, known as the deceiver, loves to keep truly saved believers unsure of their salvation, and therefore keeping them from experiencing the freedom, joy, and confidence that God wants them to have but he also loves to keep those on their way to hell deluded into thinking that they are on their way to heaven. Their conscience is immunized from Jesus' pleas to repent. So salvation is not a prayer you pray in a one-time ceremony and then move on from. Salvation is a posture of repentance and faith that you begin in a moment and maintain for the rest of your life. It's not the finish line. It's the starting blocks. It's not a destination as if you've arrived. It's a lifelong journey of an ongoing, growing intimacy with God. To repent and believe is more than an agreement with facts in the head that would be holding on to faith. It's an appetite for God in the heart that exceeds all other appetites. That's a good conscience. And I must fight every day for my delight in him. So look, at, look up here on the screen, Romans 10, 9 and 10. i want to give you an opportunity to make a confession of faith. Maybe you've never made a commitment of your life to Jesus Christ, maybe for the first time, as we've talked about the gospel, it's beginning to dawn on you. You're going, oh man, I had no idea. Well, this is what the Bible says. That if, we, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Let me walk you through that. Would you bow your heads with me? If this is the first time you're doing that, or maybe it's the hundredth time you're doing it, I do this every day. I I confess Christ as my Savior each and every day. It's important to do, but to continue to live that out. So God, your word says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. We do that now. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. We are made perfect as we put our faith in Jesus. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. God, we acknowledge our sin that separates us from you. We believe that Christ died on the cross for our sins. We confess him as our Savior and Lord. Help us to see that it's not, this is not the finish line, it's the starting blocks. Not a destination, but a lifelong journey of an ongoing and growing intimate relationship with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you made that confession this morning, tell us about it, write it on the card, put it in the box, or come up and tell me about it. I'd love to celebrate that with you. But you also need to know that you need to grow. Uh, One of the things, one of our classes that we offer here to get you started is the game of life. And in fact... uh, The game of life is about driving these six features of the gospel more down into our hearts. If you've never gone through the game of life, I'd encourage you to sign up for that. We'll be offering that. I teach the class. We'll be offering that here in February. But uh, you need to grow in your relationship with God. We're going to take communion now. And we've got three stations.